Welcome to Teaching Artist Podcast, a show dedicated to discussions of teaching art to kids, making art, and how those things overlap and feed each other. I'm Rebecca Potts, your host, a visual arts teaching artist. Thank you so much for listening. It really means a lot that you are here tuning in and following along with these incredible conversations. And I have such a special episode for you this week. I spoke with Abby Berhanyu, who shares advice for anti-racist teaching in communities that aren't quite ready to embrace it. Before we get to our conversation, I wanted to let you know that I'll be taking a little break next week to catch up on my own artwork and work on setting up the next few episodes. I am so thankful for summer and a release of teaching duties. Anybody else feeling that? But I'm also really trying to take some time now to put things in place for at least a week of true rest this summer. I hope you all can make time for both art making and rest this summer. With that said, I am continuing the monthly Art Educators Lounge meetings that I facilitate with the lovely Victoria J. Fry of Visionary Art Collective. We meet on the last Saturday of each month at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern via Zoom. We usually share info and registration links for each meeting about 10 days before the meeting. So make sure you're following Teaching Artist Podcast on Instagram or signed up for our emails to hear about the meetings. We just had a wonderful meeting with Ekaterina Popova of Create Magazine. Kat shared business tips and inspiration as well as super helpful advice around finding your audience and growing your social media following. Next month, we'll have a free community meeting, which will be another presentation of mini artist talks. We invite artists to share a five-minute artist talk as a way to practice giving a talk about your work and also get some feedback from our community. If you'd like to sign up to share an artist talk, I'll drop the link in the show notes, and we would love to see you there. Each week, I'm sharing a featured artist as well as a guest interview. I'll share a bit about the featured artist here as well as sharing images of their work on Instagram and on the website. Our featured artist this week is Amanda Vergara. Amanda is a queer second-generation Filipinx and Chinese-American artist who grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota and is currently based in Los Angeles, California. Thanks to their high school and community art teachers, Amanda has dabbled in several mediums throughout their life, including ceramics, fiber arts, Chinese calligraphy, and digital art. They are influenced by queer leftist and BIPOC artists, several of whom they are privileged to know in person. They are particularly inspired by their sibling, Margaret Vergara, an abstract painter. During the COVID-19 pandemic, Amanda rekindled their childhood love for art through self-learning, collaging, and watercolor painting. They are currently taking art history and painting courses through the nonprofit Art Division. 
Their Instagram handle is at inspiredbycats, and I will link to that as well. And here's a bit of Amanda's statement. Each of these pieces was personalized for and given to a loved one. Amanda had moved from Minneapolis to Los Angeles in late 2019, just months before the stay-at-home order took effect, and they wanted to express gratitude to their existing community when they were feeling isolated both by the quarantine and having few connections in a new city. Creating art was their way of providing community care for friends and nurturing their inner child. Amanda is drawn to vibrant colors and dreamlike qualities and enjoys playing with different styles of art. To see some of Amanda's beautiful work, check out the blog post that we shared on our site at teachingartistpodcast.com, and I will also be sharing some of their work on our Instagram feed, so keep an eye out for that. And as always, if you would like to submit your work to be featured, you can do that at teachingartistpodcast.com slash opportunities. It was such a pleasure to talk with Abby Berhanyu and hear more about her teaching and art making. Her passion and compassion comes through in all that she does. I loved her advice about anti-racist teaching within communities that aren't ready to embrace it. She talked about being a wordsmith, sharing artists' words, and encouraging students to question institutions, and most importantly, showing students love. The way she spoke about helping students grow as compassionate humans was so inspiring. Abby scaffolds these discussions the same way teachers scaffold all learning. She creates stepping stones to help students move away from singular stories about people and cultures unlike their own. Abigail, or Abby, Berhanyu is an artist and high school art teacher in St. Louis, Missouri. Born in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, she moved to the United States at the age of nine. She has always believed in the power of art to shape and transform the learning outcomes, experiences, and identity of the next generation. She practices choice-based art to encourage creativity and confidence in her students, as well as to help them take ownership of their artistic journey. Abby participated in the Fulbright Teachers Exchange Program as an exchange teacher to the United Kingdom, The experience was transformative and further solidified her commitment to cross-cultural learning and teaching. Abby loves traveling. She's been to 21 countries and counting, and especially loves partaking in educational and cultural exchange opportunities with her students. As an educator, she is committed to anti-racist, anti-bias, and culturally responsive teaching that cultivates global citizens that understand and value the interconnected world community. Let's hear from Abby. I am talking with Abby Berhanyu, and I'm so excited to talk with you again. I did talk with you earlier, but in a group. So Abby was part of the anti-racist art teacher panel that I spoke to last year. It was a while ago. Yeah. Oh my gosh. 
summer. Yeah. I'm excited Mm -hmm. to get to talk individually and hear more about your story, your experience. Could we start with that background, kind of walking us through how you got to where you are? Sure. Okay. I just recently switched jobs, so I have some experience in the interview realm (laughs) recently. That's always helpful too. Right, right. Yeah, it was an interesting process too. Well, biggest part of my identity when people ask about my background is always that I'm Ethiopian American. It means a lot to me because I came to the States when I was nine. So it was just such a transformative year that when people ask about my background, I start right there. Mm -hmm. So I learned to speak English when I was nine. I learned American culture when I was nine. Whatever that means, I learned later American culture is very complicated to learn, right? Right. And I don't even know if it can truly be defined. Mm -hmm. And then I honestly discovered a different artist identity. Like before I came to the States, I would say I was a sculptor. (laughs) I found whatever I could around my house and Mm -hmm. made sculpture. It was plastic. I didn't have a lot of toys growing up. I just didn't. In our house, we had books. We didn't have a lot of toys and we just had each other's company, I guess, you know, Mm -hmm. but when I came to the States and you hear this from artists who are English language learners, often I've noticed when connecting with artists who are English language learners, they connected with their peers through their art. And that is Mm -hmm. very true for me as well. Couldn't speak to people. So I drew, I liked to draw, I copied whatever I saw. I loved observational drawing. I still do. (laughs) There's something very therapeutic and meditative about observational drawing for me. Mm. And I try to also get my kids to go into that space with me every so often as a teacher. I tried it with my children and my little ones. They're too young. But anyway, so people would say things like, wow, you drew that. It's amazing. I think Ninja Turtles and Disney characters and the X-Men were my go-to for observational drawing. (laughs) I love the X-Men still, actually, as a 38-year-old. And so that's how I connected with art. And I went to school in Oklahoma, Stillwater, and we didn't have a visual art education. I remember Mm -hmm. having music, but not visual art. Mm -hmm. And then I moved to eight schools, K through 12. Wow. So art education was different in each one. Mm -hmm. And when we lived in Jefferson City, Missouri, art education was painting, but really very independent. I remember the teacher not really coming over and doing much instruction. It was like, here's paper, here's paint, go for it, Mm -hmm. which I think is great Mm -hmm. to a certain extent. So like these different art educators I have in the eight schools that I went through or six schools because I didn't have art education in Ethiopia. Mm. I experienced art differently with all of, you know. Mm. So it definitely made me a lot more creative and I trusted my artist intuition a lot more. I just didn't have a very structured art education experience. And maybe that's why I admire choice art Mm. (laughs) because I, I felt growing up, I was always bold in my pursuit of ideas ideas and what I created. And I find the more restrictive you are in your instruction towards students, that it takes away that imagination. So Mm -hmm. I'm kind of grateful for this non-structured experience I had with art education. And so, and then, you know, I love my family. They're everything to me, but being Ethiopian American, I mean, and you say you want to be an art educator, (laughs) it's not necessarily their dream job for me. They wanted me to be a nurse or a doctor or an engineer. Mm -hmm. This is typical of RD. And I said, I'm going to be an artist. (laughs) 
<laughs> and an art teacher. And I think that was quite this. Mm. But I still pursued it because Rebecca, you know, I've talked about this. I don't think I had a choice. I think some of us where art is so integral to our identity, we don't have a choice. We don't really have a choice. It's just what we do. And I wouldn't be happy doing literally anything else. So I, I couldn't do anything else as I saw it. Yeah, that's what I had to. So and I'm grateful for that because I, I know I made right choice and very happy teaching artists. Yeah, art appreciators. Uh. So I like to say I teach art appreciators because I think I don't know how you could teach kids to be artists, to be honest. Hmm. And that's why I love teaching artistic behavior for tab, you know, it's not about teaching artists, it's about the behaviors that come with being an artist, which is that you're daring, you're bold, you're adventurous, you're open minded, you know, these behaviors are, are behaviors you can carry through with you in life to just have a more enriched and just a wonderful life experience, right. And so I don't teach students to be artists, because I think everybody is an artist, I think they come that way. And it's a matter of just helping them nurture that part of their identity or grasp those parts of our behavior that makes us artists and that mm-hmm. makes life worth living. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. And then when you went to school, you went to school for art and education for both? Yeah, yeah. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have a lot of guidance, you right. know, and that's the part of being an immigrant as well as your parents navigated all other culture growing up. Mm-hmm. And they don't know how to help you navigate this one. And there's nothing wrong with that, because they gave me so much more than <laughs> guiding me through the college process, you know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I just didn't know what I was doing. I went to one of the state schools here. And I had a great experience. I met a lot of great mentors. I feel very lucky to have had just some amazing mentors in my life that I mm-hmm. still keep in touch with. And these people really nurtured me into the person I am and continue to do that. And then I got my master's in education psychology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very different. That surprised a lot of people, I think, because I do love art so much. And I just I'm really in love with art education, honestly. Mm-hmm. It's the strange switch has happened in my life, you know. There was a point when I thought teaching art is definitely second to my artist identity. Mm-hmm. And now if there was a hierarchy and I had to choose, I would say I'm so much an art educator and I'm in love with this profession. Mm-hmm. And and the conversations that happen in the classroom with students and playing a mentorship role just fulfills mm-hmm. me so much as a person. And there was a time in my life when I won awards for art. I showed a lot with in a cohort or by myself. And I, I didn't like it. <laughs> I'm gonna mm. lie. I, I realized I just like making art. I don't enjoy showing it. Uh. I don't. I don't enjoy people looking at my art and forming opinions about my art. I'm insecure about it. I think we all are. Yeah, I know. And it's just, it's a painful, uncomfortable experience. And I'm willing to be uncomfortable in parts of my life to achieve growth, but not that part. (laughs) I'm totally fine with just making art for myself and never showing, you know, Yeah, and making it with my kids, with my students, with my babies at home as well, you know? Yeah, Yeah, I just I'm good with that. And Mm -hmm. I think it took there's as an artist, sometimes you feel like you failed when you've settled into your art education or art teacher identity. Mm -hmm. Like I got that aura from art teachers in my life in college, like heavy could do so much more. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, but this is more. Mm -hmm. This is my more. Right. It's teaching kids. I get so much more out of that, to be honest. Mm -hmm. So 
I don't have a desire show. Do you feel like mm-hmm. that shifted at all with motherhood or was it earlier than that? Okay, so yeah. I would say I made a lot more art. This will not surprise you as your mother yourself. <laughs> right. But hey, I admire you make way more art than most mothers, probably <laughs> mother artists. But I think definitely kids provide a challenge in the art making. Mm -hmm. And you and I have talked about this, but you feel like you don't have enough time for art making. You don't have enough time for being a mother. You don't have enough time for the teaching. And it's just this constant dichotomy of running out of time. Mm -hmm. And in my personal journey, just in the conversation with my son this morning, I think that I'm going to definitely work hard to prioritize being a mother. And it's hard because it is a sacrifice that you make because I love, love, love making art and I make a lot less of it. Mm. But I try to sit at the dining room table much as I can, especially in the summers or breaks and just get art supplies out at least once a day. Mm. And it is somewhat of a torturous event at times because they don't want to like partake. I mean, my kids are just for context for your audience. They're two and four. And so, I mean, sitting still is just not something that they do very well right now. And so I've even called my son's teacher about this to see if he does make art with her, like willingly. (laughs) And to my disappointment, he does not enjoy it. So for now, for now, he's four. I'm not giving up. So every day (laughs) I'm going to take out art supplies and try to create with them. And I do. I make art with them. I find that very, very filling for the most part, depending on the day, depending on the tantrums that emerge. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) So... So yeah, so I hope that continues. And I hope to, I'm creating a studio within my house finally. Yes. We moved our basement <laughs> together. <laughs> yeah, that was my motivation. I'm like, they either each have their own room because we live in a small house or I get a studio and they live together. And I chose they live together <laughs> and I get a studio. So I'm going to try to make like little tables for them in my studio and our mm-hmm. studio and see oh. if I can encourage that artistic behavior as well. Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, I guess it'll shift with time and you'll see what they're into. But just having that space available, I think, is huge for kids. Yeah, I, you know, parent teacher conferences. One of the things I ask parents always is, do you have a space in your your house Mm -hmm. where your child can make art? And sometimes they say yes, sometimes they say no, sometimes like I never thought about it. (laughs) So, you know, I agree with you. I think the space is everything to do with your like how you form availability and find availability or even access time Mm -hmm. in art making because we all know I'm a painter, I paint, I don't do digital art. I wouldn't say it's easier, but I think digital art is definitely a lot more accessible you could take it with you anywhere right but when you're doing like studio practice that's in you know sculpture or painting you need space Mm -hmm. for making you just need you need space to set up. Yeah. And the setting up sometimes can feel overwhelming enough to where you don't push forward Mm -hmm. to create. So I'm trying to take that initial step out so that I can just get in there. Yeah. So it's always ready. Yeah. The Mm -hmm. other the other pushback I hear a lot from parents is just the mess. And I even, Mm -hmm. you know, hear it from my partner 
when I'm encouraging my daughter to go crazy and we put like cardboard down on the living room floor because we don't have a lot of space either. And he comes out and he's like, what are you doing now? (laughs) Yeah, no, my husband's the same. I love the man. And like the reason I even get to create or do much of anything is because he supports me. But uh, yeah, he's just like, he hates the mess. He's a very tidy, clean, you know, type A personality. And I'm the total opposite. And I definitely don't care about mess when making art you know it's funny how you see those characteristics in your students too that Mm -hmm. fear of making a mess yeah yeah I'm a fan of painting outside and then drawing inside yeah (laughs) to compromise you know so yeah do the messy stuff outside if you can I love that oh yeah (laughs) we painted our deck once I mean not like professional painted we literally painted them with washable paint Mm -hmm. and I was like it's washable paint I'm sure it'll come off the deck yeah and it took ages <laughs> and bless my husband he was very he was a good sport about it for sure I thought he would not be but he's like oh well it is yeah. what it is I live with an artist and apparently two more now so right <laughs> what it is. oh I love that yeah. yeah but the balance of time with parenting and teaching and making art and mm. trying to prioritize is always a challenge. And I feel like, you know, everyone I talk to who's doing all three of those, it's the same Mm -hmm. challenge of like, how do you choose priorities? And it is, you know, obviously, your children always come first, right? Mm -hmm. But it is, it it is, especially I and I think you can relate to this, I'm extremely busybody and very passionate, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And I always have ideas I want to execute, I always have these things I want to do. And I think where I sometimes like try to make the sacrifice, Sacrifice is just sleep. <laughs> it's not right. a good idea. But you understand this. Mm-hmm. You know, my kids go down at eight. So, okay, well, I have four hours <laughs> yeah. to do all those things I want to do now. But you'll always fall short. You know, uh, people who have older children always say to me, you know, I swear the time will come. It will come. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm like, that's so nice for the future, Abby Brahanu. But for now, <laughs> for me, I'm doesn't really do much, you know? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Like, what do you do now? But it is helpful. It's helpful to me to hold on to those ideas to hold on to people who are further down the road telling me it'll keep changing. And just seeing. Yeah, like seeing already. I mean, my daughter's almost six. So not much older than yours. But just seeing already how things shift and they keep shifting and changing and getting easier in some ways and harder in other ways. (laughs) Absolutely. You gain so much and you know that Mm -hmm. as a mother and that's why the sacrifices are worth it. Yeah, You know, you do gain a lot. And I I mean, I spend my days laughing and for all the sleep I'm losing that I'm sure is biologically impacting my body and a negative (laughs) toward my health, (laughs) all the laughter has to be a positive. So I think it balances, you know. It's all a balance. Absolutely. And I also I loved how you talked about the method of teaching, teaching for artistic behavior and really giving Mm -hmm. your students a lot of choice and a lot of power in the classroom and just how that your experience as a student impacted Mm. your experience as a teacher? Yeah, I mean, a part of it, Rebecca, and you know, you and I talked a lot about this. One of the reasons I'm a part of the anti-racist art teachers is I really believe in 
like embracing my students' identity and where mm-hmm. they are, you know, and I think tab and choice allow you to do that way mm-hmm. more as well. It, it helps to decentralize your identity and your desires and your wants mm-hmm. and truly create this liberated space mm-hmm. where, you know, they could be whoever they want. And I needed that in art because I just, I had such a mixed bag of experiences. You know, I went to an Italian school. I went to an Indian school. (laughs) I went to like a predominantly white school in rural Missouri. I also went to a predominantly black school with my favorite art teacher, Miss Whitney, one of my favorite art teachers. All of those teachers. And then my high school teacher also had a lot of influence on me. And especially high school, I think is what really drove me toward the anti-racist path. Mm-hmm. I just felt everywhere I went, it was just white culture. There's no other way of putting it. I was one of three black kids in my entire mm. graduating class. Wow. And I just felt like everywhere I went, I couldn't see myself or find myself. Mm. And I remember my high school teacher, she was so open-ended in those things that she taught us. She taught us skills. I really believe mm-hmm. there's there's this misconception about choice art and tab that you don't teach skills and mm-hmm. it's completely wrong. Right. You know, I teach my kids how to shade. I teach my kids how to collage, how to use materials in the space, but I don't dictate what they do with those skills, right? Mm-hmm. And that's exactly how she taught us. And I don't think she called it choice. <laughs> it's just what, what she did. But what I'm saying is like, I remember I created a lot of art based on my identity. Mm-hmm. They could be Ethiopian American, those things were, or the music I was listening to. I loved Destiny's Child, hip hop, and R&B. So, you know, I made a lot of art about that. Or like places I wanted to travel. I always wanted to travel, and I do. I've been to 21 countries. I'm so wow. lucky, and it's not enough. I want to go to more places. Mm-hmm. Every, you know, they say the more you travel, the more you want to travel, and it's true. Yeah, you just feel totally. like the world is. Much bigger than you realize. Mm-hmm. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is like in those ideas and those things I got to generate, I got to exercise my identity and those things I cared for. And that's what I needed that. Like, because everywhere I went, I read white literature. Mm-hmm. I learned about white history. I learned, you know, and I was mm-hmm. very cognizant to it, like very, very aware of it. Because mm-hmm. the school I came to before that had more of a social justice curriculum. And I was introduced to diverse writers and thinkers and artists and because I was introduced to it and I came to the high school experience I had I was really missing it you know Mm -hmm. so I'm really grateful to have had the space in art to just be myself and that's why I embrace choice and tap so much because Mm -hmm. it is at its core it's centralizing the student right and when you centralize Mm -hmm. the student you allow them to work through those things Um, for me you know feeling this feeling like I don't fit in anywhere you know yeah, especially where I was in high school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a question that I have been asked and don't have good answers, like don't always have the right answer for because I'm kind of over here in a little bubble in Los Angeles. <laughs> you know, a lot of teachers, big bubble. a big bubble. <laughs> Compared to my, yeah. my St. Louis bubble. <laughs> you know. But people have asked about trying to shift towards being more anti-racist in their teaching and more explicitly trying to push themselves in that direction when maybe they haven't before, they don't have a lot of experience. 
but mm-hmm. that they're also coming from really conservative areas, rural areas, and, you know, trying to figure out like, how do I do this? This is stuff I care about, but I don't really know how to do it. And then on top of that, I'm getting pushback from parents, I'm getting pushback from even my admin. So yeah, I, I don't know if you would have advice there, because I know you're in sort of a more conservative area. If you'd have advice for people that are kind of in that position of both not having the experience, but then also not having the support. Yeah. So it's interesting. I was having this conversation with somebody the other day. Mm-hmm. I remember at the beginning of my teaching, I just came in and I thought nothing of teaching my students about my experiences as a Black woman, mm-hmm. sharing Carrie James Marshall's work, who I still love, Yeah, you know, Michael Ray Charles and his work about Black imagery and the media and toys Mm. and how it's all subverted. Like, I just didn't think anything of those or Andy Warhol being queer. And Mm -hmm. I just talked about these things because I wanted my kids, my students to have this well-rounded idea of the human experience Mm -hmm. and that it's not all just where they live in Missouri, you know, Mm -hmm. and it was really important to me, especially because I went to school in the same area that I'm teaching. And I felt like I was trying to give them something that I didn't get, you Mm -hmm. know. And then over the years, I've started seeing a pushback, you can call it in the media, you can call it just like this, you know, sometimes there's this unspoken thing that you pick up on, (laughs) you know, and you sometimes see it coming out in the students arts. And honestly, and I'm not trying to get political, but teaching is political. (laughs) Anyway, but during the Obama years, like it just got, I don't know, as President Obama was in that leadership role, it just became you felt the push. You just mm-hmm. felt it, you know. So I have become a lot more careful in how I word what I say. I really cannot say Black Lives Matter in my classroom, mm. you know, but I can teach Black Lives Matter. Mm. And it's unfortunate. I hear myself saying these things and I wish I didn't have to, right? And yeah, it almost feels cowardice. <laughs> But as I see it, I'm looking at the big picture, which is that I would like to teach an anti-racist curriculum. Mm -hmm. And I want my kids to have a well-rounded idea of the human experience. And in order to do that, I want to continue to have my job and be able to do that without pushback. You know, so I've become a wordsmith over the years Mm. and really tried to navigate and figure out how to engage students in those discussions. Mm. And the big one, we've talked about this in the podcast with anti-racist art teachers, is using the artist voice as everything, Mm -hmm. right? And that has to be the springboard. It can't be, hey, everybody, we're going to talk about curiosity. James Marshall, whose work is about black imagery and empowering the the color, the even black, you know, mm. and blah, blah, blah. No, you let him say it because he'll, he'll talk about it in his work, right. you know, and then you come behind that and you let the students engage with what he said, mm-hmm. you know, and of course, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I've always, I still overtly question the art institutions. I always start my school year that way, mm-hmm. you know, asking students to name artists they know, usually never women, mm-hmm. never people of color, and then just questioning why that might be. Mm-hmm. And then asking them, you know, and this is the saddest thing. And this is why it's so important that we introduce our students to diverse artists and also question the institutions of art and why they didn't allow people of color marginalized groups into Mm. their institutions and why they're not printed in the history books, Mm. you know, because one of the things kids always say to me when I ask, why do you think 
that is? Why don't you see color in women in the history books? Why are the artists that you named Vincent Van Gogh and Matisse and Leonardo da Vinci? They say, well, and this always happens at every class. Well, those people didn't make art. <laughs> Breaks my heart every time I hear it, yeah. you know? So then I question, okay, you all know I, I had just shared my art with them. You know, I do on the first day on introductions and things like that. And I said, well, you know, I'm an artist. So do you think if I lived in the 16th, 17th, 1800s, I'd be making art or prior even? And they said, well, uh, and it throws them off. Mm. You know, these are my high school kids. It throws them off. Yeah. And, you know, somebody will say, yeah, because you love making art. I'm like, yeah, but then, okay, say I made my beautiful painting and I take it over to a really well-known critic or art institution. I ask them, can I be accepted into your academy? And and what do you think they would say? And they have a hard time because it's like the second day they've met me. (laughs) And and they'll say, "Um, your art wouldn't get in. I'm like, yeah, why would that be? (laughs) And they will always go for the woman first because you're a woman. Mm -hmm. Yes. What other obvious reason (laughs) might there be? You know, and then they'll say because you're black. Mm -hmm. And then we go into like how art is marketed and sold in contemporary times. We even watch an auction, which is very posh and hoity-toity. And then we go into street art and like the point of street art was bringing art to the public and -hmm. and how even the narrative around street art is like villainized Mm -hmm. and why that might be. And so just getting them to engage in these conversations. And I still do it more overtly than I would about directly talking about Black Lives Matter or this is what we mean by equity, you know, Mm -hmm. we do as we go further into the lessons and into the year. But it's like stepping stones, honestly, Mm -hmm. you know, because I've heard of teachers who have gotten fired for putting on Black Lives Matter masks and things. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very noble. And I understand where they're coming from. And I I mean, more power to them. I couldn't do that because I could possibly lose my job. I could possibly not have the plot or or be forbidden, right? More than losing my job, I could be forbidden from having these conversations Mm -hmm. and create this contentious situation for myself where I lose my platform. And the most right. important thing to me is that I maintain my platform so that I am able to have these conversations with my students because they are so, so important to their understanding of equity and how they can change institutions moving forward. Mm-hmm. So I think it's about how you word things and it's about knowing your community and it's about you like stepping stones, scaffolding mm-hmm. to some of the harder conversations for them. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of power in working within the system, like change the system from within. And I think what you're talking about is how you do that. Like it's not Mm. changing the system from within isn't like sometimes it might be big protests and cheering and Mm. yelling and and really loud. Like sometimes that's what it needs, but sometimes it's also quiet and just persistent. Yeah, absolutely. And guess what? I do go out on the streets because microaggressions Mm. get overwhelming at times and Mm. you do have to go out and yell sometimes. Yes, (laughs) And that's why I do it. I go out and yell because I need to get it out at times, Mm -hmm. right? But then I couldn't tell my kids I protest. Like, you know, these are are the boundaries when you're teaching in a community that doesn't fully understand 
conversations around race. Mm. My community, for example, I know is going to struggle with the anti-critical race theory bills that are coming out in my state. Mm -hmm. Haven't passed yet. Thank goodness we have a half a year session. So it's likely it's going to emerge again in January Mm -hmm. and we're looking out for it. And as you know, we're doing everything we can to combat or just educate people. But what I've noticed in conversations with teachers or just the general public, they don't know what critical race theory is Mm -hmm. at all. You know, I had a conversation about race with somebody yesterday and for about an hour, we talked about, you know, what the black experience might be, blah, blah, blah. And, and this person just had a very, it was this misconstrued idea of where critical race theory is. When I said to this person, hey, you know, what we talked about for an hour right now, and where you said that your mind has been opened to these ideas, that's critical race theory. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you want to know more about my experience and you would like your children to also probably have a more of an open mind and at least exposure. And these bills are going to keep them from having that. And they're going to have to sit across from somebody who's black to even understand one day if they choose, right? Right. You made the choice, but your children might not. And so it's just Mm. really, really sad. And it's also just such a great example of seeing systemic racism at play, like in this most obvious way, a collection of powerful white men get together (laughs) and generate bills that would silence black and brown voices. Mm -hmm. And it's not funny. I'm not laughing, but it is just such while discussing while saying systemic oppression doesn't exist. The irony is just Oh, layered there. It's just so layered. Yeah. And and it breaks my heart for our students, for our kids, where these bills are being passed because they are being passed. Mm -hmm. And they probably will be passed in Missouri. I'm hoping they won't, but I don't know. Uh, Yeah. Because if anything, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'm sorry to go on about this. No, go on. (laughs) I just... You just wish you can bring people into the classroom and like ask my white students, do you feel Ms. Brahanu hates you mm. or that you hate your, do you hate yourself right. <laughs> after being Ms. Brahanu's class? And no, no, none of them would say it. I get note after note from my students that tell me all the time, Ms. B, you're the only person I've had classes with that discusses issues that I've always wanted to know more about, Mm -hmm. you know, and you've really taught me and I really sound like I'm very (laughs) self promoting. But that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to prove the point Mm -hmm. that my white kids say to me all the time, like, you've really changed my perspective. Mm -hmm. I really feel more compassionate now. And I feel like I understand more than I did before. And I thank you for being honest about your experiences. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, I liken it to someone who comes into a classroom and is like a huge Star Wars fan, right? Like a teacher. You've seen these teachers. They have Star Wars posters everywhere, by the way. Big up to Star Wars. I love sci-fi, <laughs> everything. I'm obsessed. But not Star Wars particularly, but all sci-fi. I just love sci-fi. But anyway, but you see like a teacher's, when you walk into a teacher's room, you see what they really value and what's important, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like somebody saying, you can't have your Star Wars posters anymore. Star Wars is going to teach kids how to hate themselves. I mean, it's as stupid as that. Right. You know, because I come into my classroom with my black identity and I come with my experiences. Mm. And I can't just put them away. Like I can't yeah. just 
pack them up and ship them away and say, no, I will never discuss these things. If anything, I do it to help my students understand their own challenges. Mm -hmm. Like you might not be black, but you definitely have your own challenges too. And how do you overcome those Mm -hmm. to teach them resiliency? I do it in a very organic way. I don't ever Mm -hmm. come in and say, hey guys, I'm going to tell you all about the racism that (laughs) I faced. You know, I, you know, they happen organically as I hear conversations happen happening, you know, Mm -hmm. or sometimes I'll just share a story because that's the way I connect with my kids. It's true storytelling, you know, or Uh, the way I started anti-racist teaching, I guess you can say is by just listening to the conversations my students were having mm -hmm. and reacting to them and engaging them more on those things that they're saying. Cause I would hear things like, you know, black people commit the most crime. Like Mm -hmm. these are things that I've heard very openly discussed in my classroom or a kid once said after Michael Brown, was murdered it was that August and he was murdered 10 minutes from the school I teach mm-hmm. and said oh we should just drop a bomb on Ferguson call it a day wow. you know and so right away my first day <laughs> let's talk about what you just said mm-hmm. you know and engaged a whole conversation a whole class on it uh, they were afraid to talk about it but we have we talked about how problematic that stinks mm-hmm. and the dangerous path that it can lead. Mm-hmm. And I know they study about the Holocaust. So I compared it to the dehumanizing, you know, the dehumanizing of the Jews to justify mm-hmm. what was done to them. And it, what he had said is a very dangerous, problematic statement. Yeah. This kid and I ended up being close, you know, he ended up, you know, <laughs> really liking my class. Mm-hmm. And so it ended well for that semester and the rest of the year, he took more classes with me. So I didn't do it in a way that I was standing there condemning and pointing fingers, mm-hmm. but more so let's try to understand where you're coming from and what you're saying. And I know it's hard. And it might sound to some people like, hey, you should have just really let him have it. But mm-hmm. that's not how you build it. Mm-hmm. And so and I hope I built a bridge to his heart and really got him to see why his statement was just such a dangerous one. Yeah. The class had to see it, that calling in, Mm -hmm. calling out. That was a calling out moment. That cannot be a calling in moment. You know, Mm -hmm. it had to be addressed with the whole class. It was just so problematic. And Mm -hmm. I wanted my students to see right away where we stand in this class on those issues, Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. And I feel like that's so, so powerful being able to build that relationship with him too. And then you're also building the relationship with the whole class by stopping. Like you have that moment and you're like, okay, whatever I had planned today out the window, like we've got to have a conversation about this. That's anti-racist teaching. Like most people think, and we have these conversations with a lot of people, you know, Mm -hmm. some people aren't ready to do a lesson that they feel that they're confident about, Mm -hmm. right? In In the sense that they are ready to engage students on conversations around this issue in the format of a lesson. We always say that you start with personal work, Mm -hmm. unpacking your own biases, which I have too. You know, Mm -hmm. as a Black woman, people don't think, you know, I just come like with this anti-racist package, (laughs) you know, ready to go. And no, like we all Mm -hmm. come with biases and you got to unpack those first, right? Mm -hmm. But then when you hear conversations like that, those problematic conversations, it's very easy to just turn away because you're like, I don't really want to have that difficult conversation right now. I'm going to pretend like I didn't hear it. Right. But no, you could just start there. Just start, just, Mm -hmm. hey, let's have a conversation about what you just said. Sometimes you do call in, you Mm -hmm. know, to the student. And sometimes 
sometimes if the whole class heard it and the student is trying to grab the attention of his peers through this problematic statement, then you do have call it out Mm -hmm. and work together through it. And I mean, as simple as like, I have a world art class. One of my students said, you know, he looked at paint water that one of his peers have. And he said, hey, man, that looks like Nicaraguan water. (laughs) And right Right away, we have to talk about that, you know, mm-hmm. because we've talked about these singular stories mm-hmm. about other countries in the world and this idea of American exceptionalism mm-hmm. and how we can't really say one country is better than another, that we all have something to take away and learn from one another. And so right away, you know, he, he's like, what, Miss B, what? Mm-hmm. And I was like, honey, that is a problematic statement. Why do you think that that statement might be offensive to someone from Nicaragua? And he was like, I don't know. I've seen water like that from Nicaragua. I said, okay, have you been to Nicaragua? And it was very, and lovingly, I'm not yelling at him. I have a relationship with this kid, you know? And he's like, no. And I said, well, how do you know water in Nicaragua looks like that? Or I'm assuming you're talking about drinking water. How do you know? And he said, I don't know. I just always seen it on TV. I said, well, let's go back to what we've talked about, the singular story from the media of brown and black cultures in the global majority. And then we had that conversation. The whole class was in it. You know, and they were all kind of walking around. It was a very organic setting. It wasn't like we were sitting down and we're going to have instruction on this right now, you know. Mm. And I told him, I said, hey, I love you. And I don't want you to go out into the world thinking that way Mm -hmm. about people who have different experiences from you, you know, because people can make assumptions about you, too, based Mm -hmm. on what they see on the. So we really have to be careful. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I referenced it back to a lesson about the singular story of Africa as a continent, Mm -hmm. you know, which is always referred to as if it's a country right and and like my own experiences of being asked if I ate elephant meat or lived in trees or you know wore clothes and so I was like do you see how similar those could be and he was like yeah I guess I never thought about him as be and he's like thank you like I don't want to look stupid in the world <laughs> I was like he talks like this I'm not trying to make fun of him I think it's it's wonderful how he talks so it almost sounds too good to be true but you can construct these relationships mm-hmm. where you can have these conversations and they're tough but if you show your kids they're loved no matter what mm-hmm. you know and that they're a work in progress like all of us and not condemn them I think they're willing to listen and hear you know and I do tell my students I love them and that I care so much about them that I don't want them to go out in the world and be this person right mm-hmm. that looks down on others or doesn't really fully understand the experience of others and so I want them to have more of an open mind than that yeah I think that's a huge huge part of it just showing that love and coming at it from a non-judgmental point of view Mm-hmm. That to me, that sounds really difficult hearing these things that I hear even just you retelling it. And I'm like, oh, my, really? They <laughs> said that? <laughs> and know. they know they say it. Like, you know, and I'm about to go into a middle school setting. I got a new job, so I'm going to be teaching middle school at another school district. And and people are like, oh, yeah, middle school students, they say whatever they want all the time. So you're going to, I'm like, great. It's going to be anti-racist teaching everywhere then. (laughs) Because 
anti-racism is not just talking about race. It's about valuing people, Mm -hmm. valuing people for who they are Mm -hmm. and dismantling these notions we have of others that are not constructed from facts and that are honestly colonial Mm -hmm. and intentionally, these stories were intentionally created to oppress people, Mm -hmm. to take lands, to steal Mm. and to take resources. This is how colonizers were able to dehumanize the people they occupied, right? Mm -hmm. And whose lands they took. And so it's really important to get rid of those conversations that tell us that brown and black cultures are lesser, that they're Mm -hmm. dirty, that these are things I know all too well being from Ethiopia, Mm -hmm. or that they're not developed or that because they don't economically have the wealth that we have in this country that they don't have value. Mm -hmm. There's so much value in those cultures. And I know because I've visited them, I'm from there. And I'm grateful for it because I get to bring that perspective and merge it with my culture here mm-hmm. and, and hopefully give some of that experience to my students too and help them see the value in those cultures. Yeah. Especially the value of community. Hey listeners, I'm jumping in here because I have an ask of you. If you are enjoying the show, I would so appreciate your support. I'm humbled and grateful for all the interest in this show over the past several months and for the messages I've received letting me know that this podcast has resonated with you. It has been so inspiring to hear from you. Thank you. This podcast does take time, effort, and resources to share with you every week. And I want to, I plan to, keep it going and stay focused on highlighting and inspiring artists who teach while also continuing to grow this community and dreaming up additional ways to help you. One way to accomplish this is through direct listener support. Your support would really help the show and community grow. So I've set up a link where you can quickly and easily support the show The whole thing will take less than 60 seconds. It's at anchor.fm slash teachingartistpodcast slash support. You can contribute one, five, or $10 per month. If Teaching Artist Podcast is a part of your week and you love what we're doing, please consider visiting anchor.fm slash teachingartistpodcast slash support or just clicking the link in the show notes and supporting us in any way that you can today. I was telling somebody this. When we moved to Oklahoma, first of all, the plains, I came from the highlands, you know, Addis Ababa, where I was born, is mountains everywhere. Mm. And so I felt like I was going to fall off the earth because it was so flat. It was like, I might just tip over and it's done, you know. I know the earth is round for the record. (laughs) I'm not a flat earther. Anyway, one of the biggest things I struggled with as a little girl is the quiet, you know. Mm -hmm. In my culture, you know, my aunties and uncles and neighbors came over and I fell asleep every night with laughter and 
noise in the house all the time, you know? Mm -hmm. And that was really hard, you know, I remember. So that I was telling somebody that community that we have in Ethiopia and a lot of brown, black cultures get to experience. And my husband, who's from rural Missouri, also has that, that closeness, because he grew up in a very small town, right? And it's definitely not something to dismiss. There's so much value. In, and when we just look at economic development and wealth, which is connected to colonialism as well, as a whole other story. We have such a tunnel vision of what success looks like and what it truly means to have value in your culture. You know, there's a lot we can learn from others. Yeah. And I felt as you were talking, like I had this sort of pang of this connection to my, I'm white. So this colonizer mm. history that's mm. really hard to hold sometimes. And I feel like it's really powerful to let that in. But mm. with our kids that you're at the same time as you're maybe giving them that feeling occasionally that you're also saying, but I love you. You're a human being that I care about you. And I mm. care that you go into the world better than whatever is in your history that you come from that's maybe generations back, or maybe it's more recent than that. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And at no point in that moment is a child like hating themselves, because like right. you said, the way you deliver that with grace and love makes such a difference in mm -hmm. how it's going to be understood and read, mm -hmm. especially in communities that could easily be triggered by certain words, mm -hmm. you know, that they hear yeah. that are meant to keep those conversations away, right? Mm -hmm. And then teenagers, I've talked to my kids about, that, especially my AP kids, and I was like, we're family, and they talk so openly about their experiences, and we have such great, quote-unquote, courageous conversations, but mm -hmm. they understand what it means as a teenager for people to make assumptions about you that mm -hmm. are not true. I mean, it's yeah. just such a great time to connect with kids on issues of oppression. They mm -hmm. feel oppressed, <laughs> you know, right. they can connect with those feelings in like a real, real way, mm -hmm. you know? And then as we go into our adulthood, for some reason, we forget those feelings and we just become so much more difficult to, to reach, mm -hmm. you know? And so I'm so grateful to teach kids e elementary too, you know, but mm -hmm. elementary, you have this, like you teach elementary, right? Yeah. Like a, yeah. I've taught elementary too. And there's this such magic in their innocence and mm -hmm. ability to hope <laughs> for everything yeah. that gets shattered a little bit as you go up. Right. And, but you can harness it mm -hmm. like to, to give them hope, right? To give them hope, to teach them resiliency and to empower them. That's the biggest one too that we mm -hmm. talk a lot about anti-racist teaching. It's not like, oh, you know, the world's just so terrible, everybody. Well, you have a good day, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's not like uh, that. It's Okay, look at all these things that are so unfair, right? Mm -hmm. But you have the power to change it, mm -hmm. you know? One day you'll be in a position of power. What door are you willing to open? Yeah. And who are you willing to go talk to and make yourself uncomfortable so you can grow and be a better person? Who are you willing to connect with? Who are you willing to listen to? Black and brown people have so much to offer. We're not always looking for a handout and help. We have value in ourselves. Our mm -hmm. culture is rich. Black culture is, the, in my opinion, the biggest export the United States has. It's the largest export. I mean, hip hop culture, mm. clothes, like you name it. It is. I mean, I lived in England for one year and I will tell you that is what America is to them. 
<laughs> and so uh, partly the, the Brits are complicated people, but I love them. But you know what I mean? But this is our largest export. And just like tapping into that too mm-hmm. and, and seeing the value and not just seeing value in some of it, right? But embracing where the motivation for the music comes from, for the clothes comes from. Because I think it's so easy to compartmentalize and be like, I like rappers, but Black people, uh, <laughs> you know, right. it's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, you can't really separate those things. You got to value the fullness. And that's another thing anti-racist teaching aims to do is help people see each other in their fullness mm-hmm. and not just in these stereotypical caricature ways, right? Mm-hmm. By the way, I'm sure I've said words in all kinds of ways. I still have an accent. <laughs> I still mispronounce things all the time. So mm-hmm. I hope you're enjoying it. <laughs> your, your audience is enjoying it. It sounds anyway. great. I feel like it's really valuable to talk about that too, to be like, mm-hmm. I was an English language learner and that sticks with you. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for saying that. Paula Lee's and I talk a lot about this. Mm-hmm. Nyla too. I mean, it's this insecurity you carry with you all the time that yeah. you're going to say something wrong. You're going to misspell mm-hmm. something. Your grammar is going to be off. Mm-hmm. It's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> but you got to push through it. I've just learned to push through it, sometimes point it out and just be like, but you know, I speak another language. Hey, that's right. pretty cool. That's amazing. <laughs> and I have this whole other culture I get to admire and partake in too. So mm-hmm. it is what it is. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? Yeah. I feel that way about this whole idea of standard English anyway. Mm. I don't really prescribe to that. I think people talk based on the cultures they come from and that's beautiful. Mm. Instead of trying to standardize one language is like the end all be all. We should really try to learn one another's and embrace that difference and that beauty too. Yeah, I feel like that and what you were talking about before connects back to the idea of this singular story and thinking mm-hmm. about Black culture as not only rap culture, but like, where did that originate mm-hmm. from? What's behind it? But then also that not all Black musicians are rappers, <laughs> you know? Like, exactly. <laughs> you are yeah. people interested in all kinds right. of different well, things. <laughs> absolutely. And I always said one of the most difficult, and I talk about this with my brown and black kids too, like individually at times they bring it up. One of the hardest things about being a person of color is like there is this caricature of you that you're supposed to mm. fit into. And if you don't, like I listen to Nirvana and it throws people off. Like what? You're a black girl that listens to grunge and like, yeah. Okay, like I get to do that. I am a multidimensional person. Mm-hmm. And I get to be that. And I tell my kids that all the time, my brown and black kids, especially, you can be who you want to be. You don't have to be. And that's a message for all my kids all the time. But like, I especially see the pressure in my brown and black kids to be the specific, what makes black, black. The black experience is diverse. It's multidimensional. There's this beautiful spectrum. So it doesn't have to be like, if you don't act this way or be this way in this intentional way, of what makes black black that you're not black like no one can take that away. I am a black woman I'm a black immigrant and my experiences are different when I talk to my black American friends their experiences are different and mm-hmm. that has shaped us in different ways and so yeah I really hate like that it just feels like a little mini prison I've always lived with you mm-hmm. know this idea that I have to listen to a certain type of music and I have to talk a certain way mm-hmm. you know and these are conversations I've had with a lot of my black and brown friends 
where they feel that pressure too and just got to push through it because again like you said that's a part of that singular story that you have to break and you can only do it if you live your truth and who you are Mm -hmm. absolutely I feel like we've spent all of the time talking about (laughs) teaching, but I love to also hear about your own artwork and your interests there. And you talked about it as now, especially like more for yourself. So I'm curious if that's like, what does your artwork look like now? And what sort of ideas are you thinking about with your work? So I paint women mainly. Mm. I've always liked figure art. And I went to this show in Germany like years ago and it was a fashion show women's clothing and it starts off with a swimming suit and a burqa side by side Mm. and then it takes you through the journey of women's fashion Mm. it was really interesting to me how women's fashion was used to oppress women like in so many ways whether it's the corset or these tiny little shoes and and this is in the context of European fashion by the way because Mm -hmm. I'm in Germany so that was primarily what they were like you know, doing. And I don't know. And I got interested in this relationship of the body to clothes, especially mm-hmm. women's body to clothes, and also how you make so many assumptions, right, about people by what they wear. And so I just, I started painting these black figures and they're just black in color, like black, black, black. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't even really associated with race, although everybody thinks so, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I'm a black woman. It's kind of like what we talked about, what she said earlier about black rappers, you know, like when you're a black person, oh, your work is about being a black woman. I'm like, some of my work is, you know, and I'm sure that's a big part of it because that's who I am, but not always. That's not like the springboard or the place that I started. And I also have always liked superheroes and loved the X-Men all my life. Yeah. And probably because it dealt with oppression and I related to that story very Mm. well. I even remember doing a lesson with my kids on X-Men and like Malcolm X being Magneto and Martin Luther Mm. King being Professor X and like their philosophical differences and things or where they align as well. So I also just like to pose my women in the most powerful way I can. And I always give them something they're holding Mm. and that sci-fi element comes in. They're always holding something that glows like a ball. Mm. So something they're in control of and something they can either throw to defend themselves or something Mm. they can give to grow others. I don't know. It could be symbolic of so many things, Mm. but I've always done it and I like to have them holding something, you know? Yeah. It's like a manifestation of something to give, like something external of them and something they have control of, I guess. Mm. And so, yeah, that's my art. And I don't think that deeply about it. (laughs) I make it. As I'm making it, I'm doing these things. And then I have to question, where is this imagery coming from? Mm -hmm. And really, I always go back to that fashion show and I don't know there's something about it that moved me and touched me to see how clothes was used to oppress women and this relationship of clothes to the body and what we wear and Mm. like how just important to us you know yeah and also like this regalness like trying to create this regalness with these figures Mm. that are black even though I didn't intend for them to necessarily be black women they are just because they are yeah yeah well they're 
they become also like silhouettes, mm-hmm. sort of. Yeah. Yeah, they could be anybody, you yeah. know. And then one of my professors told me, you know, he didn't put faces on his figures because when you put a face on a figure, then you identify it, you mm-hmm. know. But when there's no face, it can be anybody. Yeah. And that really resonated to me. And I hate drawing portraits. So it's like, <laughs> perfect. That's why I'm going to do it. <laughs> it's ambiguous. But yeah, but at the end of the day, I enjoy painting and collage and mixed So that's what mm-hmm. I tend to work in. I don't enjoy landscape, but I appreciate landscape and perspective. And that's, I think, why I love your work so much. Uh, And my work is so busy. I just I I think I appreciate it just because I I don't tend to do and I tend to appreciate work that I don't do, you know, mm -hmm. and it's so busy. And I will tell you this, and this comes back to the aesthetics. And when we teach anti racist education, like something we need to be aware of, I come from a culture with busy design, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Ethiopian fashion is white mainly, but then you have these intricate patterns, you know, Mm -hmm. I've always been attracted to busy. Mm -hmm. And I always felt like busy is not beautiful. Mm -hmm. And busy is so integral to my culture and who I am. And I felt like I always tried to aspire to this European constructivist, minimalist Mm. aesthetic, because that was what was presented as beautiful to me in my education, Mm. and something I should aspire to. And that's something I really had to break out of, because I hated my art, because it wasn't like that, you know? Yeah. And so this is something really, really try not to do with my kids is teach them my sense of composition as like, this is the perfect type of composition. I teach them kind of the basics, but then try to come at it from many different directions and analyze composition of just diverse kind of appearances. Yeah. So they could see aesthetic beauty as diverse as well not just this one idea of of beauty yeah I feel like there was somebody I spoke to I think it might have been Kate Hessen in one of the very first episodes who brought up this idea of artistic bias or like aesthetic bias that as an artist and an art educator you come in with your own aesthetic ideas of what's your taste basically and how you have that, but at the same time, don't necessarily only share like things that you yeah. think are good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's what it means to decentralize yourself in the classroom. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard because we come in with our interests and with our idea of what the perfect art classroom looks like. And, mm-hmm. and the best classroom space is one that belongs to the students. Mm. And if you could just stick with that. And you know what? You're not going to get like work that you feel is aesthetically beautiful sometimes and like why are you the decider of aesthetic beauty anyway right is that really what art is supposed to be <laughs> and mm-hmm. so and you know some people might hear this and I, and I have heard this as well is well you gotta have a standard it's like the standard is helping the student find their voice mm-hmm. you know what I mean and giving them like a bag of tricks along the way if they want to use it So any feedback I give to my kids, I always say, listen, I'm about to give you some feedback, but you can totally not use any of it. And it's okay. Mm -hmm. Okay, I will not be offended. I think sometimes they need that permission. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. like if I don't apply this feedback, Miss B is gonna like grade my art low. And no, I grade it based on participation. Anyway, process over product. So that also absolves you of that tension of like, 
well, I have these five bullet points. I need them to show me in their art. And if they don't show it, then I can just take off five points here and there. Mm -hmm. And I'm not criticizing anybody who does this, by the way, because I have done this. (laughs) This is my journey, Mm -hmm. you know, to questioning why do I do that? And I learned a lot of that choice workshops. They opened my eyes, choice art workshops and tab workshops opened my eyes to some of these things, like ways I was restricting my students, Mm -hmm. right? And I noticed honestly when you give them permission they take the feedback anyway (laughs) I don't know what it is it's just like because teenagers don't like to be told what to do anyway you know (laughs) so they're like oh she's not really telling me what to do so I can do it it's like reverse psychology (laughs) it is but I'm not trying I'm not intentionally trying reverse psychology right but that's what ends up happening anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I know you mentioned shifting jobs and Mm -hmm. I'm curious if you have any sort of tips, especially with tab teaching Mm -hmm. in that shift and even in interviewing and looking for a new position while you're teaching. I feel Mm -hmm. like sometimes you're asked to provide lesson Mm -hmm. plans or do demo lessons and that's a very different situation with tab. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I'm lucky and that I'm going to a school district that really embraces TAB. Awesome. And actually, some of the workshops I've taken are from their teachers. Oh, cool. (laughs) So it was Uh, okay. And and I will say with my current school district, they definitely let me do whatever I want, which I really appreciate mm -hmm. as well. But in terms of tips you're saying on how to get people to embrace it. Yeah. I think it's about letting people know we have standards too. It's just that our standards look different, you know, that we still teach kids skills, Mm -hmm. like especially going into middle school. I know the high school teachers will want them to come in with certain skills while in high school. I know some of my kids will go into design Mm -hmm. and will need some of the aesthetic and the compositional feedback. But I think it's always letting people know that, we do teach skills and this is how we do it right and then I think the student reflection element is huge in mm-hmm. tab as well and letting them know we have students analyze their work I think that it always impresses people yeah just can talk about art <laughs> like, yes, we teach them how to do that mm-hmm. and you know what when they do it's really special and they write you like two pages because they really cared about what they did yeah versus like we're all drawing hands and we're all going to put the elements of art behind it which is a lesson that I used to Mm. cringe but Mm. you know now write about this project that I made you do (laughs) you know it's different right from so I think just pointing that out like these are the standards that I have for my students which is that they find their own voice and their own aesthetic while I provide feedback along the way on how to use the media Mm -hmm. teach them skills on how to harness design concepts and bring them into their work. And then I also really look for growth. And that's Mm -hmm. my standard. Like, where did the students start? Where are they now? Where are they headed? And then pushing, I think the big thing with tab that people don't like is like, you're okay with a kid just using pencil the entire semester? And it's like, for me, in my own philosophy, if I see a kid doing that, I'm fine with it. But then at some point, I'll come in and have a conversation about risk tape, you Mm -hmm. know, and how important it is as artists that we push our ourselves beyond our comfort yeah that is artistic behavior right Mm -hmm. and then using the eight studio habits obviously as a guide and those Mm -hmm. do those are your standards those are great standards right explore I think that's a big one people are afraid of is like it's 
just a free-for-all, but it's about facilitating over direct. I think that's the big one that they have to know is like you're facilitating the learning and not directing the learning. Right. And, and then sharing with them the outcomes that you see as a mm-hmm. result of that, which is that students are a lot more resilient. They're a lot more confident mm-hmm. moving forward. They love what they're doing. Mm-hmm. There's a stronger student engagement. And this is what TAB looks like. These are the standards that we have. This mm-hmm. is what we value process over product. And this is what we see happening. Yeah. And then I always also tell people like, you hear the statement a lot that we're preparing students for jobs that do not exist, right? Mm-hmm. You've heard this said several times. Well, welcome to TAB. Yeah. <laughs> like, we don't know what's going to come out of that. But what we do What we do is we train kids for this unknown thing. Mm -hmm. We train kids to work through problem solving and experimentation. And those are the behaviors that are going to lead to a person that's able to tackle a job that's not yet constructed, right? Absolutely. So I think it's a big one too. Yeah, I often hear this worry that it's just complete chaos. Like what happens in a classroom where students can choose what they're doing and get up and go get the materials they need. And I'm like, well, (laughs) it's actually less chaos because they've chosen what they want to be doing. And they feel like human beings who are empowered to get what they need to get to do what they want to do. (laughs) Like, (laughs) so many fewer behavior issues like they're happy and excited so much less Mm -hmm. you know especially like I said you know little kids are just just full of like ideas they have a million you know they're ready to go I love it so I had a student tell me because at the end of the semester, I always have students comment on what worked well for them, what didn't work well for them. And I, you know, we talk about how this is like our critiques. You have mm-hmm. to be constructive. It's OK to tell me what didn't work so that I can mm-hmm. improve my teaching. And it's anonymous. And although they always put their names on it, but it is supposed to be anonymous. But a student told me this year, and I'll take this comment with me forever, Miss B, I got to do all these projects that I've been saving for years. (laughs) I just love that. Yeah. I love it. They had all these ideas that they've been saving. Uh. Oh. It's, it's both sad and beautiful at the same time, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's the epitome of tap there. Like they have had all these ideas. And if you're directing their link throughout the entire experience, then they don't get to execute it. They don't get to live out their dreams and live out these ideas they've had in their head all along. So Mm. anyway, yeah. Yeah. So powerful to give them that opportunity. Yeah. And I think a lot of our teachers practice tab in some past. So I don't Mm want to come out here like, Like, oh, we're the only ones, you know, I think for me, again, everything's a stepping stone, like scaffolding, Mm -hmm. really believe in just baby steps, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't start like, let's all just go, (laughs) you know, I started with themes, do themes. You know what I mean? And I still kind of go into themes Mm -hmm. every so often. There are no rules to where if you break away from this, you're not truly a tab teacher. It's Mm -hmm. just about working toward as much choice as you can possibly give your students. Yeah. And I feel I'm giving them more and more choice with time. Mm -hmm. And I'm not always fully there. And I have to pull back sometimes. Be like, oh, you're going to that directed instruction. So Mm -hmm. come down. Yeah. It's a spectrum. And we're all probably like moving a little bit back and forth on it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Yeah. You know what I mean? I really hate absolutes of any sort. Mm-hmm. Like, Because the world is not just, absolute. No, it's not. And you mm-hmm. can make your own rules along the way. I know that's really dangerous thinking. <laughs> you know? But that's liberation. Mm-hmm. You know, who's holding you up to these rules? Most mm-hmm. of the time, it's just yourself. Unless you're talking about a systemic difference. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Like, overall, you have the freedom to do what you want with your life. You might sacrifice a few things along the way that you can do it yeah I love the idea of stepping stones and the visual Mm -hmm. and maybe this is a stretch but (laughs) I was noticing too in your work like your artwork there are this recurring circles like lots of circles happening in your work that to me there's a visual connection to this idea of stepping stones Mm -hmm. stones these circles that are powerful but also they're small and they're kind of like all around you yeah yeah. You're such an artist, Rebecca. <laughs> These artists. visuals. <laughs> We're such wonderful people. <laughs> yeah. we like no one, no one can talk about circles like we can. You know, <laughs> my friend used to say, "You all can talk about a half glass of water for like hours." I'm like, it's possible. With oh, look at the colors in it. Artists and artists are one and the same, exactly. <laughs> but I love circles because there's a physicality to mm-hmm. art making that I love, and that's why I have such a hard time embracing digital art which Mm. I'm working toward because my kids love it Mm. so it's a great opportunity for my kids to teach me Mm. so I'm like what is that tell me about that platform that you're using how are you doing that you know so it's a great way to connect with the kids but there's this physicality to painting and sculpting Mm. and printmaking that is so visceral and something that like is the reason I fell in love with art and Mm -hmm. I you know sounds really petty and weird but I love painting circles Mm. I love physically moving the paintbrush yeah (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> through curves, you know, through these curves, and they make me happy. Yeah. And so I just do because one of the reasons I make art is I like the physicality. I like mm-hmm. the the act making, right? Yeah. And so, and that's probably why I don't care to show it because I often hate my art mm-hmm. at the end anyway. And so oh. I'm like, yeah, it doesn't matter though. I hate it, but it doesn't matter because I loved making it. Mm-hmm. It's all good. Uh, you know? Process over product. Process over product. Yeah. And I tell my kids this name all the time. If you hate it, like it doesn't matter. I love it. Mm-hmm. It's okay. <laughs> and it's okay to hate your art every so often. It's okay. Like mm-hmm. you don't have to, not everything has to be roses and perfect and positive. Yeah. And as much as I love that aspect of American culture, that is very American. Like we are very much like find the positive. <laughs> you go to Britain and they're like, well, that's <laughs> negative. <laughs> you know, like, let's talk about what's not working. <laughs> and my British friends would laugh. They would laugh at this. You know, mm-hmm. they would say, oh, you're relentless. Like American optimism is so annoying. <laughs> you know, it's a cultural thing that we have that like, oh, but we want all our kids to love everything and all the time and everything mm-hmm. they do and you know no that's not reality that's right. not the whole human experience and the feelings like and mm-hmm. that's partly I mean not like coming back to racism because I like to always come back to racism because yep. <laughs> it's always you know, there and, well it's like where color blindness is born partly mm-hmm. right it's like oh don't be so negative and talk about oppression mm-hmm. right so, like these real things that affect oppressed brown and black people like oh, it's just so negative can mm-hmm. we just focus on the positive <laughs> which is that there is no 
difference and we're all the same. Mm-hmm. Let's just come back to that and just call it a day. Like it's a cultural thing too, you know? And mm-hmm. I think the more we sit with negative feelings and work through them and live through them and acknowledge them, I think that the more real experiences we get to have, I mm-hmm. loved that about, the sh- you know, I loved, I loved that they were such realists in the mm-hmm. way they spoke about their emotions, feelings, and ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot there in the idea of this relentless optimism that yeah. you almost feel guilty if you're not if you're not positive, if you're not optimistic all yes, the time. Absolutely. And it's so debilitating, right? Mm-hmm. You see it in people who go through grief or who are experiencing some like pain, you mm-hmm. know? And I've struggled with depression, mostly situational and postpartum. Mm-hmm. And but God, what I need is I just need to work through it and sit in, you know, mm-hmm. not feel happy. And I smile a lot. And I'm a decently bubbly person. And like those days when I'm not able to be, it's like I feel like I have no permission. I might feel mm-hmm. the same way. And it's, it's very, it, it's not good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just going to go with the simplest. Yeah. We shouldn't impose our way of processing negative feelings on us. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. We should be able to process those how we want to process to work. Right. Yeah. This is something that we need to work in our culture. And we are. I see it. I see Mm -hmm. us working. Yeah. I Mm -hmm. saw some quote that was basically saying, like, it's okay to not be okay. And that's hard. That's something I have to sit with sometimes. Like, try to just be okay with not being okay. Yes. Yes. That's so important for our kids to know, too. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that so much teaching, if we focus like in terms of the weight of distribution of knowledge and just teaching as social, emotional empathy and knowledge of culture and others, and then we're like, but here's also a color wheel. <laughs> or here's also how you do matrices. I really think we would be better people. We would literally have, I always think of teaching as like, I'm helping to cultivate a person who's going to be in a car one day and they're going to be driving next to somebody else who's in a car. How are they going to share that road? How are they going to interact with those people? Are they going to be self-centered, self-serving? I really think we just need to prepare people to get into a car on a road. And I know that sounds really weird, but like to live life. And how are they going to engage with others and spaces in the world? You know, are they going to do it with empathy, compassion, love? Or are they just going to care about themselves and their desires, their wants? And and who cares about everybody else and how my actions Mm. are going to impact others? So beautiful. We just had that. We just create such awesome people. Right. Yeah. And that's partly what anti-racist teaching is too, Mm -hmm. you know? Absolutely. Ah, That's so beautiful. And you do it also through modeling. Like I can hear Mm -hmm. the love and compassion that you show them and show them like how to have that. Well, you're good to me. Thank you for saying that. I try. I'm always a work in progress. Mm -hmm. I definitely don't have it all right. And uh, I hope others always extend grace toward me that I try to extend. Mm -hmm. So yeah, thank you for saying that. It's very kind. Yeah, yeah. No, I I see the same in you, by the way. And I love this conversation. Well, and I think there's just people you meet where you can talk about these things very freely Mm -hmm. sometimes. And that's such it. So thank you. Yeah. And I love your podcast. Oh, thank you. I see you doing this. 
experience with people so much, mm-hmm. you know? And honestly, I tuned in. I was like, oh, like she interviewed us. Let's see what's about. <laughs> and then I liked you on the podcast. And then I just kept listening and listening. And you just have such sincere conversations mm-hmm. with people. And I think I've grown a lot from listening mm-hmm. to some of those conversations, not just as an art educator, but as a person thinking about those things I value as well, or maybe haven't thought about mm-hmm. valuing, you know? And so thank you for doing such important work. I think that sometimes just sitting and having a conversation with someone is just the most beautiful thing. And then to be a fly on the wall, (laughs) sounds a little creepy. And like hear that beautiful conversation is sometimes even better because you, you know, you're not thinking through it. You're just listening and passively taking in and processing. So thank you for having me. And thank you for the conversations you're having with art teachers. And thank you for centralizing us because we're pretty freaking awesome. Yes. (laughs) I think we're the best you know and I think what we do is the most amazing thing and I will go to my grave fighting for art education all day yes you know? oh thank you so much Abby and anti-racist teaching yes yes <laughs> uh, yeah you know I started doing this mostly selfishly <laughs> like I need to feel less alone in all of it yeah. so it's always so heart warming, I guess is the right word. Like it's touching to hear that other people are getting that out of it as well. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Absolutely. And I encourage anyone to listen to you. I've been passing your podcast along to art teachers in my life. Thank you. And I think that it's just very little spaces where we are centralized Mm -hmm. in any capacity. So we're just always kind of like, hate the saying the stepchild. (laughs) You do feel Mm. like people just literally don't get what you do in the classroom. Even your own friends. And like, it's not ill intentioned. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just that we create magic every day in our classroom. We see kids blooming in front of Mm. our eyes, doing these incredible things. Yeah. But I think people think we just finger paint. And there's nothing wrong with finger painting. But I swear, like, I think that's what people think we do is just sit in a class and just go, kids, here is paint. Do whatever you want. Right. And I'm going to go over here and read a book, you know. <laughs> and it's just it's just such an otherly experience that only other art teachers can understand and why we keep fighting for this and yeah. doing it, you know. Absolutely. It's hard sometimes. Uh, it's hard to fight for something that others don't value. Yeah. And I feel like that comes back to not understanding that they don't understand mm-hmm. what's going on in our classroom. Same as Mm -hmm. people trying to ban critical race theory, just Mm -hmm. fundamentally don't understand it. They don't. And that's where we have to educate people, right? Mm -hmm. And it's so easy to get upset and sometimes even hateful at the people who are. But you got to push those feelings aside Mm -hmm. and try to bridge where you can. (laughs) You just got to create bridges where you Mm -hmm. can. Honestly, like that's the only way that you can do what's right for kids. Mm -hmm. And it's not to say that I don't don't have anger in my heart, you know, that's where the protests come in. Mm -hmm. I go and shout it out at a protest where I can. Yeah. But I also know what works on people. Mm -hmm. I've also taught identities and been around people that think very differently about the world than I do. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like I have clay that's been fired through that. Mm -hmm. And I've been hardened by it. Mm -hmm. But in a good way, I feel like I can have these conversations with people and push my anger and disappointment down and try to connect and figure out where they're coming from and where they're thinking, you know, mm. and just create bridges where possible. And that's not for everybody. Yeah. Like, and I'm not saying everybody should do this. That's not for everybody. Yeah. You know, I think- again, it's what 
come back to what you and I were talking about. You got to feel your feels mm-hmm. and, and work through them how you work through them. This is just how I work. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really important skill, but you're right. Not everybody has that skill and ability to create those bridges. Yeah. yeah. And some people are bolder than I am. Yeah. I admire that so much. Yeah. I have friends that are activists that are just such bold, courageous people. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I have that either. Right. So I, I see, mm-hmm. I see where I'm lacking. I see where, what works for me, you know, mm-hmm. and I admire things that others do that I'm not capable of doing. So mm-hmm. all power to them. I love that. I love courageous, bold people. Yeah. Especially courageous, bold women, like mm-hmm. just so awesome. <laughs> yeah. I connect with people that are like that so much, you know? Yeah. But then there's so much power in the way that you're working too, and the way that you're building these bridges, creating these sort of little stepping stones out of nothing. Thank you. I'm trying. (laughs) I'm really trying. Yeah, my husband always says all you can do is move the needle forward, Mm -hmm. right? So I have to have that perspective, Mm -hmm. because I do feel so defeated with these bills coming Mm -hmm. out left and right. I mean, I feel it in my bones. Mm -hmm. I cried over them. And Mm -hmm. it's so painful for people to say to you, like, you don't get to share. who you are right nope you know like you don't get to share your experiences you don't Uh. get to share your stories you don't get to honor people who have sacrificed so much to give you the life you have i just feel so indebted to black people in this country that have paved the way for me Mm -hmm. to be able to live the life that i live like i do Mm -hmm. i feel this deep gratitude and that lack of acknowledgement for their pain and Mm -hmm. oppression really drives me it's not just my own it's those who came before me and who have given me the path and not just for me talking about my brothers for women for queer people like Mm -hmm. black people have sacrificed so much Mm -hmm. and have been beaten and and hosed and mm. bitten by dogs and killed and murdered to pave a path for, for all what should us. be equality, right? Yeah. Like the Civil Rights Act, for example, would not have happened mm-hmm. not for the Civil Rights And so just the lack of acknowledgement and appreciation mm-hmm. really drives me. I, I have to tell people these stories and I have to make sure connects. Mm. And, and I'm grateful for it. As a Black immigrant, I'm very grateful for it. So it's not mm-hmm. just for me. You know? Yeah. And I have to do it for others coming past, right, for my kids and for my students mm. and for those who come in the future, invest in the next generation, you know? Yeah. And that's, we get a platform to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. That's great. So, as educators. Absolutely. Uh, well, I would love to throw you these two questions that I try to ask everybody. You probably know. Sure. <laughs> what, I do know them. What are you curious about right now? So I was like, dang it, you know, Rebecca's going to ask me this question <laughs> and I'm going to sound like totally pretentious and be like, I'm curious about everything. What am I not curious about? And it was very true. I am very curious mm-hmm. about a lot of things from anywhere from is there life on other planets to Mm-hmm. and reading about it like legit going and looking up information to recently I've been really into public art like I want to do public art with mm-hmm. my middle school student and my colleague seems really open to that too so I'm really excited to collaborate with her and do that I'm always curious about traveling to more countries mm-hmm. and more places I especially want to go to West Africa I've never gone to Ghana and I really want to go mm-hmm. I've been to South Africa Mozambique and Lesotho and South you know any Ethiopia, but I want to explore some of West Africa as well. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to go to Turkey as well. Ooh. 
Yeah. So traveling is, and, and like big one here. Let's say I told you I'm curious about too many things. <laughs> I really want to take my students to the continent of Africa. Mm. It is a thing. I don't know where yet. So I'm not generalizing because I hate doing that about the continent of Africa. But right. Somewhere, you know, Ghana would be great because I haven't been there. Mm-hmm. And so I took them to China like three years ago. Oh, and that was such a beautiful experience to see your students and travel. It is literally euphoric mm-hmm. to see them like these little seeds just blooming everywhere that are being planted through their travel experiences and then like falling in love with traveling. Mm-hmm. And they paid their own way, a lot of them. They come from very humble beginnings, the same ones I came from. Mm-hmm. And they were like working at Denny's and like, fast yeah. food and doing everything they can to pay for this trip on their own and to see them realize that dream mm. it was so beautifully how they used it in college and didn't wait, you know so I want to travel more I'm curious forever about traveling and especially with students and so those are just some things I'm curious about I guess yeah um, there's always more yeah what are like you never ending <laughs> have you ever answered that your that question yourself I don't know if I have lots of things also <laughs> My artwork has been about water lately. So looking into, yeah, yeah, like I, you know, just reading poetry, but also reading about the properties of water, but then also in the works, more sort of environmental focused work around smog Mm. and air quality. So I like Mm. try to find data about it. Yes. Yeah. And then trying to like kind of bridge all of the gaps, like in my own artwork, I'm interested in many different things. And I'm constantly trying to pull them all together, which is hard. because It's too many things, motherhood and the body, the female body, and then environment. And there's some kernel of an idea in there about Mother Earth connecting to mm. the female body and womanhood and yeah. environment and climate change. Gaia, you know, yeah. like base all work on Gaia. Yeah. <laughs> and I, if I was going to have a daughter, I was going to name her Gaia. Oh, beautiful. I, I make a lot of art about my kids now too. Mm-hmm. Like I love making art, you know, it's just, I have so much love for them. It just has to come out somehow. Yeah. And it comes through the art, comes through kisses. Beautiful. <laughs> this is fun. It is interesting how when we become mothers, we make yeah. You know, not everyone. This, this is a trend with mommy artists. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's like what else takes up your entire world? <laughs> nothing. <laughs> Literally nothing. And yeah. talk about complete unpredictability, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to go home and do this. No, you're not. Instead, <laughs> you're going to be doing this. You know, so. It's definitely an adventure, you know, so I want to live abroad with my kids. That's another Mm. thing I'm curious about. I really, really want to give them that exposure to life in other places because I'm a sci-fi fan. It's almost like traveling to other planets. Uh, Yeah. Because the world is so beautifully diverse and has so much history to offer, so much stories, so much so much everything Mm -hmm. and forever just it literally feels like you're on a different plan so I want my students to experience it and I really want my own children to as well yeah the other question the fun one what is your favorite food oh that one's easy (laughs) I was like oh Rebecca asked I got this Indian love Indian food I could literally eat it for breakfast lunch and dinner Mm -hmm. I do not because it's Probably not a good idea to, but <laughs> I know all the Indian restaurants in St. Louis. I know the patients. I know what each dish tastes like uh. at each place. You know, sag paneer, palak paneer is my favorite. The cube mm. cheese. And, so uh, good. Oh, it's so good. Mm. And I like the 
in me as well. Oh, I have a pretty worldly palate. I don't know if that's the right way to put it. But when someone says, let's go out to eat, my inclination is like, from what country? <laughs> you know? More travel. It's always my go-to. Yeah, more travel. And then Ethiopian, like if you're Ethiopian, I can't, if anyone Ethiopian is listening to this, I have to say this or else I'd be like, what is wrong? With I mean, if you're Ethiopian, it's in your blood to love Ethiopian food. Mm. It's just like there's something addictive about the injera, which is the spongy bread mm. and various sauces and things like that, mm-hmm. which I try to make for my kids when I can. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that bread is incredible. <laughs> you have a lot of Ethiopians in LA, so I'm sure you've had plenty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I know. So I have two more things. One is, is there anyone that you would like to thank or give a shout out to? Yes. I mean, my husband, Mm -hmm. he's my partner in everything. And, you know, anytime I say, hey, you got the boys today, I got this thing going on. I got this, I got this. I have such a, I don't know how my life got this busy, but it did. (laughs) And he's always there. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate it. He's also a great sounding board for me. And he does encourage me to make art, but I I don't like being encouraged to make art. I want to make it when I want to make it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that part irritates me every so often. But, But he's such support for me. And then my mom, you know, my mom is my rock she watches my boys I'm able to do this with you because she's watching them, mm. you know for me right now that's huge and I'm just so appreciative to her and then all my friends and colleagues who are always letting me be who I am and lovingly and mm-hmm. just putting laughter in my life mm-hmm. I love laughing I have an okay sense of humor but I definitely love laughing with people mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm grateful for the friends that I have my colleagues that provide that like relief for me yeah you know and so I would say those are you the know my dad for teaching me hard work ethics and my brother who's wonderful and I'm grateful for having spent this life then as my go-to partner in crime in so many ways yeah so I'm grateful for my family too so much awesome it's hard because I have a lot of people I love mm-hmm. and the anti-race art teachers also have become great friends for me yeah and wow I'm so grateful to do this work with them because I will tell you it's like a passion in my heart mm. and if I couldn't get it out And I don't think I could get it out by myself. That collaboration is something that's really helping me grow. Mm -hmm. And and I'm just so glad to even have somebody to vent with about these things. Right. That's huge. I feel like it's an Oscar speech. And then what's your other one? (laughs) And then last thing is where can listeners connect with you online? God, I'm so bad at that. (laughs) I can also link. I have your links. (laughs) I was going to say just link. Yeah. I honestly am like an 80 year old. I am horrible (laughs) with social media. Post. I don't know what to do with it. Tagging people and things are just like rocket science for me. <laughs> and so, yeah, I I guess that's what I would say. Just link on Instagram. And I I am going to try to be more active next year because I think it's a great space to collaborate with our artists. Mm-hmm. It's like converse, right? So I see the value in it in that way. Yeah. So I'm intentionally going to try to engage through my Instagram. And then the big one is our Teachers for Anti-Racist Curriculum Facebook page, mm-hmm. which I moderate or I admin it and mm-hmm. does that with me as well. Yeah. And I start so that we can collaborate on resources for anti-racist art education. Mm-hmm. So I would say our teachers for anti-racist curriculum, go there, connect with me and everybody else who's interested in the work. Awesome. Thank you so much, Abby. Um, oh, thank you, Rebecca. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can reach me at Teaching Artist Podcast on Instagram 
or teachingartistpodcast at gmail.com. Who do you want to hear from? Please share your recommendations of teaching artists. And if you loved this episode, please subscribe, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow me. It really makes a big difference. Thank you. Thank you.